Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Unrivaled talk. Fast talk. Honest talk. Talk radio. The home of free speech. Kevin O'Sullivan. Hardworking, hard-edged, hard to beat. Talk radio. Let's broaden our minds. Access all arguments. Kevin O'Sullivan. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome one and all to my mid-morning spectacular right here on Talk TV. I'm standing in for the incomparable Mike Graham, my friend and colleague, today and all week. So stand by for the dependent vassal state of Kevin O'Sullivan. I'm with you all the way to one o'clock. Here's what's coming up. Is Rishi Sunak really getting a grip on the migrant crisis or is it spinning out of control? After hundreds more crossed the channel in illegal dinghies and small boats last week, the Tory government is making a song and dance about its bold new strategy to house new arrivals in a giant sea barge currently sailing towards the sleepy Dorset seaside town of Portland. Now migrants are warning that if they don't like this new form of accommodation, they will simply wander ashore and disappear. And Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick says that the relentless search for new hotels to put the migrants up in will continue. So what exactly will the barge achieve? 03444991000. In other news, Keir Starmer is refusing to apologise for Labour's poisonous posters accusing Rishi Sunak of being soft on paedophiles and gun crime. So does that mean that everyone is now free to ask the Labour leader why, when he was Director of Public Prosecutions, he failed to prosecute Jimmy Savile? Just asking. Uh, with these seriously nasty billboards, Keir has ruthlessly taken the gloves off. But maybe now he's going to get hit hard himself. 03444991000. Meanwhile, I'll ask why striking doctors are being offered counselling if they're traumatised by cruel comments on social media. Bunch of snowflakes or what? If you don't like the heat, guys, get out of the kitchen. 03444991000. Or just don't go on strike. Then you won't get any nasty comments. Try that. Peter Hitchens is dropping by with his characteristically trenchant thoughts on e-scooters, that weird form of transport that seems to have consumed us 
without warning or regulations. Why don't you need a license to drive one? And Peter wants to know why King Charles's invitation to his coronation is adorned with a picture of the pagan god, the Green Man. So do I, as a matter of fact. Still with the Royals, Prince Harry's biographer Angela Levin is standing by with her take on the upcoming bombshell book that lays bare the depth of the bitter rift that divides the warring Windsors. Also, former Met Police detective Peter Blexley joins me to discuss Home Secretary Suella Braverman's angry response to a heavy-handed raid on an Essex pub because it displays a few gollywogs. Apparently, this potential hate crime swoop required no fewer than six officers. And why are killer prisoners like Wayne Cousins, Ian Huntley and Levi Belfield, three of the worst human beings who ever lived, having landlines installed in their cells? Phones, so they can phone around, you know. What is this, a prison sentence or a holiday? What next, swimming pools, trips to the seaside? It's getting ridiculous. Supposed to be punishment. Uh, Plus, find out all about a university degree course for drag queens. Is this your idea of the dreaming spires of academia? Or is it just ludicrous? 03444991000. Not forgetting the wonderful world of sport and European golfer John Rahm's astonishing triumph at the Masters. And an investigation has been launched after a linesman appeared to elbow Liverpool star Andy Robertson in the face. Extraordinary. All that and so much more. So don't go anywhere. Stick with me right here, right now, at the home of free speech and common sense, Talk TV. Let's spend Easter Monday together. And uh, in a little while, uh, we'll be talking to people down in Portland about this uh, upcoming impending arrival of this super barge, this uh, barge for more than 500 young male migrants. What kind of effect is that going to have on a town of just 13,000 residents? Uh, A sleepy seaside port suddenly... 500 young men with nothing to do all day. Uh, There's a bar on board the boat. They can have a few drinks. They can go ashore, have a few drinks. Uh, What could possibly go wrong? 03444991000. And Angela Levin will join me at the end of the hour to discuss uh, the upcoming bombshell book by Royal Commentator Royal uh, Robert Jobson, uh, which lays bare the depth of the rift in the royal family and also all the new plans for the coronation, a shorter coronation procession, a shorter ceremony. I mean, if we leave this to Prince uh, King Charles for much longer, there won't be any royal family because he's slimming it down so much. Everything is so small, so dull, so tedious. I mean, what is the point of the royal family? Majesty is the key King Charles. Don't take the majesty away from the royal family and stop acting like you're a human version of the Guardian. Backing all these probes into the royal family's links with slavery, which will end up with Charles and William making grovelling apologies and absolutely nothing will have been achieved. A bit like the uh, Church of England. They too are uh, setting up a, a £100 million slavery fund uh, you know, to tackle their own links to slavery. This is all stuff that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Let's concentrate on today and stop self-flagellating about Events that we can do nothing about that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. I have never seen anything more absurd than this. This 
historical nonsense. We've got to move on. Anyway, we have a packed show lined up for you. Three thrilling hours of uh, powerhouse broadcasting lie ahead. Uh, let's get straight on with it uh, and go to my first guest, uh, former MEP, Ben Habib. Hi, Ben. Good morning, Kevin. You're uh, quite right. Mike is incomparable, but so are you, Kevin. I just want to say that before yeah, well, thanks, we start. Th th thank you. The check's <laughs> in the post. Um, <laughs> Good. Uh, let's uh, kick off with this migrant barge and just the migrant crisis generally. Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, I'm not against sending a, a sort of deterrent message to the migrants who want to come across the channel. You won't necessarily end up in a four-star hotel. You might end up on this barge, <laughs> or you might end up in this disused RAF airbase. I'm not against that. But I think, first, it's just smoke and mirrors, though, isn't it? We're talking about 500 people on this barge. We've got sort of 60,000 of them all around the country in about 500 hotels. We had hundreds came across last week. Mishy's, Rishi's mission is supposed to be stop the boats. But all he's going on about is more accommodation. The barge itself is a defeatist statement saying we can't stop them coming. So we have to find new, exciting places to put them. And by the way, the barge... <laughs> <laughs> the barge isn't very cheap. Uh, it's just a publicity stunt, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, you, you opened absolutely spot on, uh, Kevin, when you said that you're not against deterrent. Indeed, the entire government's policy on border control is founded on deterrent. The idea is that they'll make it difficult for migrants to um, get asylum. They will forcibly detain and then deport asylum seekers. And through that, they hope to deter uh, illegal crossings of the channel. But let's just have a look at actually how this is playing out. If you are trying to enter the United Kingdom in one of those dinghies, the minute you enter British territorial waters, you get given a safe free ride on board the force to a British port. You then get taken to either a hotel or in the future, this barge, which sounds pretty good to me. They've got snooker tables, you know, a gym <laughs> a and all sorts of other things, <laughs> a bar. So you get taken to this place, you get given cash, you get given free medical care, free food. You even get, get dental care. So where is the deterrent? You know, Rwanda was announced over a year ago. Not a single deportation has taken place. And now we're meant to cheer the fact that my, these illegal migrants are no longer being put up in hotels, but being put up in barges, as if that's some kind of victory. They should never have been put up in hotels in the first place. The whole thing is ridiculous. And of course... From, you know, from their perspective, if you just go back to the point on deterrent, from their perspective, they're not deterred at all. They know the United Kingdom is a soft touch. Yeah. As soon as they get into British territorial waters, they will be looked after royally. Of the course. The whole thing has just gone to pot. Of course. We're four or five months in to Rishi Sunak saying one of his pledges for 2023 was to stop the boats. The boats are up in number. We forecast 80,000 crossings this year versus uh, 46 last year versus 26,000 the year before that. This is a problem out of control. And Suella Braverman was absolutely right to describe it as an invasion. And until people recognize actually what is happening to the country and take that on board, they won't formulate the right policy to deal with it. Deterrent, by the way, is not the right policy. The right policy, Kevin, is to stop these boats in the channel and send them back to France. That's what we have to do. We've got to develop the courage to stop the boats and make them go back. And yes, that will be a physical exercise in the channel. But if these people have willfully put themselves in boats to make that dangerous crossing, when they come to our waters, 
they can be required to turn around and go back where they came from. It's a perfectly reasonable thing for us to require as they try to enter our country. And let's not forget, as a backdrop to uh, all this uh, smoke and mirrors about barges and uh, disused air bases, uh, Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, uh, yesterday stressed, oh, we're still going to have to get hotels, by the way. We've still got to put them in hotels. Uh, and also, uh, what has emerged today, uh, out of the 45 thousand migrants who came across the channel last year guess how many we've uh, successfully deported 200 well, 215 i mean nothing is happening here this is just getting worse isn't it that's 0.4 percent that is just it, they're not doing anything rwanda's a red herring the nationality and borders bill which was championed as a solution is a red herring the illegal migration bill doesn't work i've looked at it you, but the point is, and I'll just come back to it, Kevin, you cannot deal with border control through deportation, through deterrent and deportation. The only way to deal with border control is to actually control your borders. The clue is in the name. And border force need to be sacked or they need to do their job. We need a force that will actually protect our borders. It's as simple as that. And we possess all the laws required to do it. There's nothing, there's nothing uh, extreme in what I'm suggesting. All countries across the globe pretty much protect their borders. You know, that's what a border is all about, is to protect uh, the country from people coming into it who are not welcome, who haven't got permission to enter the country. That's what it's all about. And the government needs to wake up to that reality. OK, hold these thoughts, uh, Ben. And when we come back, uh, we need to talk about the hospital doctor, the junior doctor's strike. Uh, and we need to talk about the Good Friday Agreement. It's the 25th anniversary uh, of that agreement. Uh, and, of course, uh, I think all the details of it are in trouble uh, because of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which hasn't been solved yet. So we'll discuss that after the break. I'm still talking to former MEP Ben Habib. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. See it, hear it. Think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Uh, welcome back. Uh, getting a lot of uh, social media and uh, texts uh, from uh, viewers and listeners. Uh, they're, they're very angry about these uh, posters, these uh, poisonous posters that Labour have put out about Rishi Sunak, claiming that he's soft on paedophiles, doesn't think that paedophile sex attackers who assault children should go to jail. Uh, I don't know what on earth they base that on. I've never heard him say that, have you? But we will be addressing that later in the show. Trevor Kavanagh from The Sun will join me to discuss uh, this new low, I think, in uh, political debate. Uh, so uh, we haven't forgotten that and we will be dealing with it uh, now. I'm still with uh, Ben Habib, former MEP. Uh, ben, uh, let's talk about the junior doctor's strike. It starts tomorrow, four days. Uh, it's being described as the most destructive strike in NHS history. Uh, GPs have scrapped their services in order to cope. Uh, we're also hearing incredibly that the junior doctors on strike who are receiving a lot of insults on uh, social media are being offered counselling to deal with these cruel comments. <laughs> well, don't go on strike then. There's an idea. Uh, uh, but I'm thinking we've had the nurses strike. We've had the ambulance drivers strike. Make no mistake, these medical frontline workers, when they go on strike for more money, basically, uh, they put lives at risk. People have died because of these strikes. And because of the junior doctor strike, more people will die. I find it incredible that we are prepared to sacrifice human lives 
on the altar of industrial action to get a few more quid into junior doctors, nurses and ambulance drivers' pockets. I find it incredible that we are, as a nation, prepared to accept the concept that just one person should die because of a strike. But it's not one per pe person, it's quite a few people. Uh, we're letting people die because of industrial action. So I would suggest that it might be time to tell uh, or order uh, frontline medical workers that like the police, like the army, like prison officers, they're not allowed to go on strike. Well, of course, I, of course, you're right. No one's health should be at risk as a result of, uh, of medical staff striking. But there's a bigger underlying problem here, uh, Kevin, isn't there? And, and it's this, that the economy is fundamentally broken. I know you've just discussed that poster about you know, Sunak being accused of not wanting to put paedophiles in jail, which, of course, is over the top. Mm. But there's a new Labour poster coming out saying he's broken the economy. And I would fully support that contention. Uh, you know, Rishi Sunak really has broken the economy. We are hugely indebted. The public sector doesn't work. Wages are low. Taxes are high. Benefits are high. And actually, the gap between benefits and wages now is really small. It doesn't pay to work. And I'm not <laughs> suggesting benefits necessarily need to be cut. I mean, it's a serious point. Actually, yeah, I think it's the sure. most serious economic problem facing the United Kingdom. You know, you can get over debt. You can cut taxes in due course. The private sector will resuscitate. But if it doesn't pay to work, you inculcate a, a benefit culture. And that's what we've got in the United Kingdom. It doesn't pay to work. So underlying this is effectively... Uh, an, un, uh, an underpaid, underremunerated, uh, cheap labour, unskilled labour workforce that the Conservative government has created over 13 years of economic mismanagement. And the doctor strike is one symptom of it. Obviously, we've seen lots of other public sector workers and private sector workers on strike over the last year. And this is a new thing that the United Kingdom is experiencing for the first time since the 1970s, basically, or early 80s. And it, it is because the economy is broken. So I've got great sympathy for people who've only had their wages put up by 5% or whatever it was before this latest inflation spike. Whereas in the last 13 years, inflation in aggregate has been more like 35% because they've had real reductions in their wages. But what we've got to do at a fundamental level, I'm going to come back to the doctors, but what Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have to do at a fundamental level is recognise that they've got to make it worthwhile to work. And the only way to do that is to cut taxes on the working and middle classes. I'm not talking about the rich. I'm talking about the working middle classes. Make it pay to work, grow the private sector, cut back taxes on business. And actually, you will see the ship beginning to write itself. But what we now have is this horrible situation where junior doctors, frontline workers in key public services are going on strike. And of course, you know, it's fire, firemen, it's um, policemen, it's teachers, it's the Royal College of Nurses who before had never striked. First time they ever st striked in history was last year. You know, this is a very broad fundamental problem. So I completely agree with you. If you're in a sensitive sector like the armed forces and indeed some aspects of the medical sector, you must not be allowed to go on strike. But there's a much bigger problem here. And I'm afraid the blame does lie at Rishi Sunak's door.
Yes, indeed. Um, let's move on. Uh, it's the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Well, it was on Friday, obviously. Uh, uh, Rishi Sunak has urged uh, the return of Stormont uh, because, of course, that uh, parliament hasn't sat for uh, a long time now due to divisions between the various governing parties. Um, but uh, the problem is, is the DUP especially does not want to reconvene Stormont because they're not happy with Rishi Sunak's uh, new Northern Ireland protocol. Rishi's acting like, oh, I've sorted that. But he hasn't, has he? No, he hasn't. And I'm glad you call it the new Northern Ireland protocol because it is just another version of the protocol which caused so much constitutional and, uh, uh, you know, damage to, the, to, to, to peace in Northern Ireland. Um, at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement is the principle that you get uh, cross-community consent. In other words, nationalists and unionists, so those who wish to be part of the Republic of Ireland and those who wish to be part of the United Kingdom, both communities get their wishes. They ha- you know, both have to concede to something before it can become uh, you know, established in law. And the Northern Ireland Protocol was forced onto Northern Ireland. The Good Friday Agreement was actually changed in order to sidestep the requirement for cross-community consent and to foist it on Northern Ireland. And Rishi Sunak has done exactly the same with this new Northern Ireland protocol that he calls the Windsor Framework. And what, 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 what effectively is happening here, Kevin, is that violence is being rewarded. And I'm just going to go for a quick trot through history. In 1984, we had the Brighton bomb. In 1985, Maggie Thatcher, for whom I had great respect, signed the Anglo-Irish Agreement, giving the Irish government for the first time an influence in Northern Ireland. And that taught the terrorists, actually, if we threaten violence, we'll get our way. And violence went on until they got the Good Friday Agreement. We saw the Good Friday Agreement, those of us who are unionists, as a peace settlement. They saw it as a bridgehead for further steps towards reunification. And the threat of violence has never been taken off the table by them. And actually, even now, Kevin, even now, when they've had this, when nationalists, the Republicans, the EU has had this massive victory with Rishi Sunak conceding the protocol in effect in their favour, right now, the terrorist threat in Northern Ireland is severe. Over this weekend, yeah. it's gone pretty much unmentioned in mainstream media. But the reason that the, the, the terrorist threat is, is heightened is because the IRA recognise that the more they rattle this cage, the more appeasement they get out of British government. And let's make no excuse. The Northern Ireland Protocol and the Windsor Framework is appeasement to violence. And they got the protocol because Leo Varadkar went to the EU with pictures of bombed out posts from 1972 and said, do you want us to be doing this again? That's how they got the protocol. And we keep slip sliding and you do not prevail in any sphere if you appease the opposition. And we have become serial appeasers. It doesn't just apply to Northern Ireland. It applies to the threat from, uh, you know, the people who claim that we've got a, a terrible past because of the slave trade and the church is appeasing with its £100 million fund. The, the royal family is appeasing through going through its own assessment. We are appeasing this movement, which is racist. BLM is a racist movement. It says Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. But we appease it. We, we appease Extinction Rebellion. Everything that comes across our desk, we appease. And Northern Ireland is perhaps the most tangible example of appeasement. And the reason I say that is because we have handed over, in effect, we've handed over part of the United Kingdom to a foreign power 
without a single shot being fired. And it is the ultimate in political weakness that I have seen in my life. Yeah, I, I love the way uh, when they uh, announced the severe alert, uh, they said oh, the, the danger level now is severe. And then they added, but no one needs be alarmed. Well, we are alarmed, obviously. You should be alarmed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ben, ben uh, I've got a call a day to it there, but it was excellent to talk to you as always. That's Ben Habib, former MEP. Uh, when we come back, we'll be going to Portland to find out what the locals think about the migrant barge. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan, and this is Talk TV Live from the Talk Radio studios. Welcome back. Uh, uh, we are now going to talk about, in a little while, by the way, we'll be uh, talking to Angela Levin about uh, the latest news on the King's coronation, his slimmed down coronation. If it gets any smaller, we won't even notice it happening. It's going to have a short procession. It's going to have a much shorter ceremony. I mean, maybe just call it off. I mean, if you're that worried about it being too big and too full of majesty, King Charles, call it off. What's the green man doing on the invitation to your coronation, your majesty? Let us know. Uh, You've got the number, King Charles, 03444991000. Give me a call. Uh, now, first, uh, let's uh, go down uh, to uh, Portland in Dorset, where they are awaiting the arrival of the uh, migrant barge. It's called the Bibi Stockholm, sailing from... Uh, Italy at the moment. It's going to house more than 500 young male migrants uh, with nothing to do all day. So uh, one would imagine that this is a source of some concern for the local residents. Uh, let's talk to the chair of Portland Town Council, Carolyn Parks. Uh, good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. I, I'd just like to correct you, though. I'm not the chair Oh, okay. Council. Okay, but oh, you're, you're under, on the council. I'm the deputy mayor, and I'm I'm an Underhill Ward councillor. Okay. This okay, is great. Well, De deputy mayor, uh, and you're on the town council. So, but I mean, mainly, Karen, and I wanted to talk to you as a resident of Portland. Uh, and you have this barge coming towards you. I know you've had a prison ship before, but when you get a prison ship, they're not allowed off. Now, these five hundred or so migrants, all young men. Uh, will be allowed off uh, whenever they want. Uh, by the way, they're closing the doors of the barge, I gather, at 11pm every night. So the mind boggles as to what might happen if they get back, if a group of them get back after 11pm and can't get on board. Uh, you know, and I'm sure you're all generous, spirited people, you know, and we've got to put the migrants somewhere, I suppose. Uh, but this must, this is the impending arrival of 500 young men milling around with nothing to do every day in every way. That must be a source of concern for the local residents. I want to make it crystal clear that our opposition as town council to, to this barge is not motivated by any form of anti-asylum seeker or, or migrant sentiment. If these people come here, they'll be treated with decency courtesy and respect by our, our town council. Um, it, this is for us is about housing people with... Yeah, but what about... Uh, never mind that, uh, Carolyn. What about the local well, residents? I'm just, I've, I'm just an article. Yeah, I know. OK, well, I've got that on board. I've got, I've got that. I've got that. On, look, if you're going to be like this, what is the point? You know, you're just giving me a political statement about how much you love asylum seekers. Fine. What do the I local residents... No, Carolyn, are you going to talk to... What I've said... What, yeah, is, I know what you've is, said. Is, 
human beings come here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've done all that. What do the locals think? You're just going to shout about... at me. What's well, because you're just saying, you're just giving you me want, platitudes. You want, to hear, you want to hear the view of... Are you going to answer my question? Are you going to answer my question? You want to hear the view of Portland Town Council, then give me an opportunity to speak. Yeah, well, you just you're just giving me political platitudes about asylum seekers. I want to the Carolyn. Carolyn, you're just shouting at me. Why are you shouting at because, me? Because you're just saying you the same thing. I want to know what local residents think. Because I'm not think. saying what you want Ugh. to hear. Well, no, no, no. You, you you're not saying anything that has any point except you like asylum seekers. What do local residents no, think? We we want to treat people with with decency. Yeah, all that. Yeah. But what happens when you've got 500 young men not doing anything all day, drinking maybe, causing problems? What do the locals think about this? I've just told you what the locals think about this. Now, I live here. Yeah. I've lived here for 25 years. Yeah. The people that I've, I've spoken to are appalled at the, the fact that there may be 500 yeah, exactly. human beings put in Portland port. And by, by the way, you, you say that they're, they're supposed to be allowed on, on an, and off the port. The last time I went to Portland port, yeah. I had to have an appointment. I had to take my passport. Interesting. And I had to walk in a, a limited area with a lanyard. Yeah. So don't see how this this free access on and, on and off that this barge is, is going to work. I, I, I don't see how that, that's going to happen. The port's a restricted area. Yeah. This is what I'm, I'm interested in. You know, I, I respect your views about we all want to uh, be ge generous spirited. I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to get to the bottom of what you were alluding to there, of, of what the locals feel. There's only 13,000 people in your lovely town, I do believe. Uh, and, uh, you know, 500 young men, you know, with nothing to do. They can't work. Uh, they've got all the free time in the world. There's a bar on board this boat. Uh, I don't know if you've got pubs in uh, Portland. I'm sure you have as well. Uh, and uh, by the way, I should say a lot of them are Muslim, so they probably don't drink. But but you see you see what I'm getting at. You know that that surely locals are worried about the prospect of 500 young males with nothing to do suddenly in your midst. The worst thing about this is you, you're talking about our, our asylum. These, these people are asylum seekers. We've been told by the, the government that these people are, are asylum seekers, that they, they will be processed, fingerprinted and, and all the rest of right, right. asylum seekers. So we're not talking about people who are illegal or, or migrants. These are people who have some sort of, of claim to legal process. Our, our process takes two years and more. So you're talking about these people being confined on, on board this vessel um, for, for two years and more. It's not a temporary solution. It's, it's not a solution that, that's going to deal with any kind of, of um, migrant crisis over the channel because... you. We've got 51,000 I, I know, I know exa exactly right. 50, so, 50, okay, well, let, let's unpick that. 51, well, well, no, let's unpick the fact that, that 50, why has... Why has no, 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 don't just talk. Don't just talk. What? Let's unpick the fact. Oh, why no, has Portland you, been chosen? You, you asked me on here 
Yeah, alone, you're just giving me political platitudes. I'm trying to get to the heart of the local problem. You're the one, you're the one who's making all of the nasty political points. You're the one who's What's shouting... My, what political points have I made? I'm asking you what the locals think about 500 young men with I'm nothing not to do... Yeah, well, you know what you keep saying about processing migrants. What's that got to do with it? What because do the locals think? You're I'm a local councillor. Tell you what the locals think. What do they think? What do they think? Tell me again. What the locals think, because what the locals think doesn't chime in with your world vision. No, 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 no. Tell me what the locals think. What the locals think, what the people that I've spoken to think, is, is that having this boat... Yep. more in, important port is is not addressing any kind of, of problems that the, the government's created it's it's a gimmick it's all about the may elections yeah. but the, the government is, is is trying to i agree i agree <laughs> of, of nasty populism against human beings who could be incarcerated for up to two years two years on a, on a, a barge, but they can get up. They can come come ashore any time they I like. I've already said I don't see how that's that, going. To but, well, it's true. It's true. You better get used to it. They are allowed ashore whenever they want. I'm They're not, not prisoners. People. They're I not prisoners. Not I am not frightened of human beings. Five hundred young blokes. I, I would. I would love. I would love if I were in. God forbid, I were in the same situation. Uh, to, to have to, to seek refuge in another country, for people to treat me with decency, humanity. Yeah, yeah all that. Yeah, yeah, sure. But um, what yeah, about, yeah. what do the locals think? I've told you what the locals think. No, you don't. You've just, given me, you, you've just given me a party political broadcast on, on the part of the Portland Labour Party, haven't you? What do no, the locals I've, think? I've told you. I've told you. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you've told me about your tremendous humanity and all that. Yeah, I know Underhill that. Well, Underhill residents are, are humane, decent people. <laughs> we, we care about we care about other human beings. Hmm. That's what Underhill residents do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and what, what are you, but what are you going to do about five hundred blokes wandering around your town? There's, there's nothing the Portland Town Council can can do well, what, in any. Well, what do you feel about sense. it? We've, we've had we've had no no consultation. Aren't you angry, Carolyn? That no, they chose you. No, we've had no consultation. I know exactly. Now we're talking. Before. This is this has been between Portland Port and the Home Office. So are you angry at that exclusion? You must no, be angry about no that. No consultation. The, the, are you angry about the that? Authority, the authority... Please tell me whether or not you're angry about that. I'm, I'm angry. I'm I, angry about... Thank you. Thank you. The lack, the lack of humanity... Oh, God. ...displayed by this government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you I'm angry I'm, that they've I'm chosen, angry. almost at random, your town... Uh, to impose 500 young men on. Are you angry about that? What I was trying to say to you before is is that there's 51,000 people... Yeah, in yeah, yeah. What about the 500 country? that are coming to Portland? Stop talking about the rest of the country. 100 of these barges, 100 <laughs> of these barges to accommodate people on. So Portland... There's only one. Uh, there's only one. Uh, there's only one barge and no, it's coming there's to Portland. There's another one talked about in Liverpool as well. There's, no, there isn't. No, there isn't. There isn't a, no. there isn't a migrant barge in Liverpool. There's, so there let's get the facts right, yet. shall we? There's only there's one barge and it's coming to Portland. 
There isn't one in Portland yet. Yeah, but... <laughs> they're, they're talking about one in, in Liverpool as well. Yeah, well, it's not in Liverpool, and it's as yet it's not that's going to Liverpool. Me. Well, it's just what, ridiculous. It's just no, ridiculous. You're, you're being ridiculous. Have you ever? Have you actually watched yourself? Huh? You're shouting at me. Huh? Well, I, I'm just trying to get you to answer a, a single question. You don't seem. You don't seem to be. You don't seem to be at all. You haven't. You haven't liked my answers. You haven't wanted. Yeah, because to you haven't answered. Well, okay. Ask me a question. Oh, me. I've been asking you questions, Carolyn, for fifteen minutes. You haven't answered a single one. I've answered all of your questions. What about healthcare? Like in, what about healthcare infrastructure in Portland? Oh, well, oh, oh, now let's talk about infrastructure. Portland has one GP surgery. Right. Uh, we have one road on and one road off the island. We don't. We don't have a hospital. We don't have the infrastructure to care for people with... For the 500 migrants that are coming your way. Complex, complex needs. People yeah. who, who have uh, mental health issues arising from whatever torture or ill treatment that they've, they've run away from. You know, or, or other health problems. We just don't have that infrastructure. Yeah. So when the 500 migrants come here, the, the infrastructure of Portland is going to be under almost an impossible strain, right? Well, yeah, it is. Yeah. So you, are, are you it's angry exactly. about this? Are you worried about this? Oh, it, I'm, I'm angry and, and annoyed that our government in the 21st century would consider doing this to other human beings. That's what I'm, I'm angry. What, putting them on a barge? With a yes. bar and a snooker tables. Confining 500 human beings. They're not beings confined, Carolyn. They're not confined. Yeah. You have, well, you obviously haven't read any. I have read. Yet yeah, they are allowed to come into it. They're allowed off the you boat. They're not confined. You, you just, you they're just, not prisoners. But what, they've, what the Home Office have said is that they're going to minimise the need for, for these asylum seekers to leave right. the lodge. That's what, that's what they've said. And, and there's curfews. So it's not freedom of movement. Yes, it, 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 it is. It like, is. It it's is. another form. I think, I think Carolyn, you're up for a rude awakening when this barge actually docks and you get the 500 migrants uh, on that barge. They will be allowed into your town. They'll be allowed to do whatever they like. Quite rightly, they're not prisoners. Uh, so you better brace yourself and then maybe you can come back and tell me what you think about it all. Uh, but it's been fun talking to you, Carolyn. Thank you very much for your time. Carolyn Parks there, Deputy Mayor of Portland Town Council. Uh, I mean, what do you think? Should she be a bit more annoyed about it? I think she should, but uh, 0344 When we come back, uh, uh, we'll be uh, taking a different uh, direction. We'll be talking about the royals with uh, royal biographer Angela Levin. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studio. Kevin O'Sullivan. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Uh, welcome back. Uh, well, after that sometimes explosive first hour, uh, why could you that woman just tell me what the locals thought about this barge? arriving in their small town. She seemed averse to answering that pretty basic question. Uh, anyway, we are now going to uh, go from uh, those stormy times to perhaps a more reflective mood uh, and a warm welcome to the studio. He's been very kind to come in on this appalling Easter Monday. Uh, it's Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens. Hi, Peter. Morning. Thank you for coming in. Uh, now, your column yesterday had me gripped, uh, made a point to me that I hadn't really thought of. Uh, you're an opponent of uh, e-scooters. 
or at least the way they are being... Uh... No, I am an opponent of theirs. Oh, okay, I, you're I, an opponent I, I, of I, I, I would have them all okay. put in a large so heap it, and, and melted down by the public hangman if I could. Well, in, in Paris, uh, they pretty much banned them because uh, they were deemed to be a danger to pedestrians, a danger to the road. Uh, there's no licensing on them. And as you quite rightly said in your column, uh, this is actually, it, it, I hadn't thought of this before, it's a very weird form of transport. Who the hell wants to go around, as you said, on a little tin tray with a couple of small wheels at 30 miles an hour? People say it's a it's an alternative to the car. Have a look at London today. It is pouring with rain. I don't see this as an alternative to a car. I'd rather be in a car. But more to the point, Peter, no licensing. Anyone can get on one. What's going on? Well, it's, there was a very sensible rule. Um, some people People mock the idea that, that motor, motor cars should have a man with a red flag walking in front of them, though I would myself reintroduce it tomorrow. <laughs> but the, the, the well, motor, ve motor vehicles are dangerous. <laughs> they, they just are. And the, the, the moment anybody has ever, for the first time, taken control of a motor vehicle and, and found it has a throttle and you, you can really make it go without any physical effort, realizes the difference between that and, say, a pushback. It's huge. And these things can go really fast. And yet, uh, someone will say, oh, well, they're limited to 15.5 miles an hour. Well, technically they are, but you, I'm sorry to say this, and I don't encourage anyone to do it, but it's not very hard to find out how to tweak the speed governors on them so they can go a lot faster. And they're yeah. sold on the Internet. Versions of these scooters are sold on the Internet capable of, I think, 70 miles an hour. They can go really, really fast. So let, let's not have any, any claims that they're restricted to 15.5 miles an hour. It's just not in practice true what they what has happened is for some reason the department of transport has fallen for lobbying which has said that they were they will get people out of their cars uh, or whatever it is that, it, that they were told and has decided to license for the first time uh, quite powerful motor vehicles which do not require anyone to have an, an actual driving license involving passing a test to ride them. And also they don't have to carry full-size number plates, so they can't be tracked by AMPR systems or anything of that kind, and nothing can be done about people who break the traffic laws on them, well, nothing of any, of any importance anyway. So here we have a huge change in our national law, a really, really big change. Powerful motor vehicles, uh, which are capable of being ridden on the pavement and are ridden on the pavement, and alongside them the e-bike, which in, in my view is in some ways even worse, which looks like a bicycle from a distance, and people who ride them get all the facilities granted to cyclists, such as being able to ride on the cycle tracks. But they, again, can do very, very high speeds. They're extremely heavy. If you got, got hit by one of those going at 20 miles an hour, it would ruin your whole day. And yet, again, no restrictions. They are actually motorbikes. Uh, I have a motorcycle license myself. It took quite some getting. Uh, you, these things can be ridden without any such thing by anybody, anywhere, uh, at extremely high speeds. And pedestrians are beguiled by them because you see them coming. You think they're bicycles. And it's only when, when you get used to the fact that they exist, you realize how much faster they're coming at you than a bicycle could possibly be. They're very, very dangerous. So yeah, nobody. I, when I when I when I first mentioned all this years ago, it now seems to me, on, on, particularly on Twitter, the main response I got was, "Well, aren't cars already dangerous? Well, yes, they are. So how is that knowing it's having more danger?" Uh, and the other thing was, "Why are you messing around with such a trivial subject?" Well, I'm constantly dealing with, with, with huge subjects, whether it be Ukraine or the decline of the police or the education system or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but it doesn't mean I'm prevented 
if I if I see a, a controversial subject where nobody else is taking it up, it doesn't mean I'm prevented from engaging in that as well. It, it, th- what I'd never get is a rational f- response from anybody defending them because there is no such response. There, there is they are indefensible. I, I like as you imply in your uh, article yesterday. I mean, I can't, why do you think they're becoming so popular? Because it is a weird way to travel around. Uh, I mean, it looks dangerous. It must feel dangerous, as you said. T- basically, a little tin tray on a couple of very small wheels, yep. uh, sometimes doing as much as 50 miles an hour in the souped-up versions. Uh, I mean, what is the appeal? Why are more and more people using them? Uh, basically, laziness. Because what, what people actually use them for is, 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 is for going the sort of distances you would once have walked. Mm. Uh, people who are too lazy to walk the final or the first half mile or mile of any journey can now use one of these things. And that's the other thing I have very much against the e-bikes. The whole For, for 40 years, I and people like me have, have joined campaigns for better facilities for bicycling. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. For this simple reason, that it's incredibly good for the environment and also incredibly good for the health of people who bicycle. Now, the thing about e-bikes is they are polluting, though the, the pollution is done in, in the, the, the power stations which charge their batteries, and they provide no real exercise for their riders at all, yet they get the facilities, which has taken 40 years for real cyclists to campaign for. I just think that's completely wrong. And the other aspect of uh, this situation is, of course, uh, you know, these scooters are not licensed. And, uh, you know, if you want to go down the pub uh, and have six pints or something uh, and drive your car back, you put yourself at great risk, uh, both personally and because if you get caught, you'll lose your license. So a good way round the drink driving laws is get yourself a sco- e-scooter or uh, even a bicycle, but uh, an e-scooter, and then you, then you can drink. Well, there have been occasions when people have been have been uh, prosecuted for... for rare, yeah, they are extremely rare for this very simple reason. The police are absent from our cities. 
uh, particularly at weekends and at night. They're just not there in many cases. And so you, you can be in big cities and, and the, the pavements, which are supposed to be reserved for pedestrians, are crisscrossed by high-speed chunks of metal uh, being ridden by people who aren't necessarily sober. And it just increases the danger. They're also the ideal, the e-scooter is the ideal vehicle for the, for the mugger and the pickpocket because of the ability to weave in and out of small corners and make a quick getaway. Yeah. I, I think that people haven't fully realised how bad it's going to be when their use becomes universal, as I think it will. And that's why I say it's a step towards the third world. It'll make our cities much less livable than they were before. The, 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 the Paris decision is interesting. It, it basically, they've only banned hire scooters. You can still buy them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and, and it's only supported because the, the, the poll they held was was only, I think, uh, involved about 17% of the population maximum. The ban's only supported by a, a, a small, if vociferous, number of people. I don't know whether it will hold, but certainly Paris, which went for e-scooters earlier than we did, had an experience of, of injury that was a particularly bad case, I think, of a, of a member of the orchestra at the Paris Opera who had her arm broken and was, was, was pretty much unable to pursue her profession. And this, this really concentrated people's minds when they realised just how dangerous these things were to people going about their normal daily business. Yeah, we've had a couple of uh, deaths here, haven't we? Uh, and other injuries, as you quite rightly say. I mean, the government, in terms of uh, the rise and rise of uh, scooters, almost unnoticed e-scooters uh i mean have they been asleep at the wheel are they just not really looking or have they fallen for what uh, you I, said earlier uh, heavy lobbying on I, the part of the I, i'm sure they industry. have been lobbied uh, the, the 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 policy they chose of licensing rental e-scooters in a large number of cities while maintaining a, a legal ban on privately owned ones seems to me to be designed to confuse everybody. How could you tell whether whether what you were seeing was a was a was a breach of the law or not? How could the police realistically enforce it? So you have one person riding a scooter, uh, and he's completely legal because he's rented it, and the person coming up behind him is illegal because he's bought his. <laughs> how is this law enforceable or even rational? That's how it was introduced. It, it's almost as if it was introduced to confuse people into saying, oh, let's get rid of all these restrictions and let them happen anyway. I don't know. Uh, one day, doubtless, the, the, the Cabinet papers will be published and we'll know what was going through their minds. But it certainly doesn't seem to me that they thought very hard about it. Certainly not. Uh, let's uh, move on. Uh, you also say in your column, uh, uh, there's a, yet another study has, uh, well, st- I was going to say suggested, has stated that face masks uh, did not in any way prevent the spread of COVID. This is about the third serious medical study that has revealed that. And yet we are still told, wear a mask, it'll be good for you. It's extraordinary how hard it is to to, to wean people away from this. Mm. I, the what what emerged even during even during the, the height of the panic was the extraordinary case of the Danish mask study, a huge uh, randomised controlled study of mask wearing in Denmark, which first of all could not get published by a major scientific journal. And we don't know, again, eventually it was published by a scientific journal after a long delay, during which what negotiations took place between the researchers and the the journal, we don't know, if any. But certainly, even despite uh, whatever happened, it was quite clear from the research that there was no no serious evidence that that, that masks protected people. Uh, There was then, after it was all over, the Cochrane Review, which very much tended to confirm that. 
and it, and, the, and now there's this St George's Hospital review, which again suggests strongly that the difference made was 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 negligible, and yet there are still people who go around wearing masks. Hello. Well, the, I mean, the the arguments against them have always been: look, the sort of masks that most people wore, those little blue, loose cloth masks, which many people wore repeatedly. Uh, even even the, the the strongest defenders of mask wearing admit that they 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 have gaps at the side. They're not they're not properly sealed, and that the rewearing of them uh, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, exactly make them more effective. Uh, but it's there is there is an almost a sort of cultish aspect of the the really enthusiastic mask wearer. I remember seeing people when they were first first began to be introduced, wearing them with a sort of um, a sort of air of Superiority and goodness, uh, in in a, in a way which I found quite disturbing, but there it is. You can go on on saying it, and I will still get people telling me that actually they that they they are effective or that they haven't been proved to be ineffective. And how can you, uh, without the most enormous uh, research, probably taking twenty or thirty years, how can you establish? Uh, causation on this matter. It just does seem to me that common sense and quite a lot of scientific uh, research suggests strongly that they were they were a mistake, and that certainly that compelling people to wear them was a mistake. Mm-hmm. And my problem was always the compulsion. Uh, I have never ever gone up to someone in the street and said, "You're wearing a mask. You shouldn't." Because it's none of my business. No, sure, yeah. But but if those who didn't wear masks in the, d- during the height of the panic were quite often confronted, uh, confronted and, and harangued by by mask wearers. Uh, I don't think they had any business doing so. That's my most fundamental position. If you want to wear it, wear it. But I don't think you have anything like enough evidence to compel other people to do it well, this, or berate them for not doing it. Well, this kind of, kind of continued sort of phantom belief in the uh, efficacy of masks, I think, feeds into this kind of strange attitude that we have uh, from our body politic that the handling of the covid crisis by the government by the politicians uh, you know was faultless yeah, nothing, well. nothing was wrong you know there's there's no, no 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 you can't question the lockdowns everything we did was absolutely perfect it's weird because clearly uh, you with the benefit of hindsight we're not necessarily b- blaming the politicians at the middle of the firestorm but at the hit with the benefit of hindsight we can see mistakes were made and yet they won't well, admit think, them wouldn't you but in it actually on after the, the horrible terrorist attack on Manhattan in September 20, 2001, uh, the fear was unleashed on the world, and politicians understood uh, at that point, I think, just how incredibly useful fear was mm. as a way of persuading people to do things that power would, of wouldn't otherwise agree with it. Mm. And uh, yeah, as you rightly say, the power of nightmares, and, the, and so people were persuaded to to uh, to accept the watering down of habeas corpus and and freedom in general. Huge increases in police powers. Uh, enormous increases in the interference. And, you know, pe- people got used to being treated if they wanted to fly abroad on holiday as if they were newly arrived prisoners at a penitentiary. They got used to it. And, and I, I, I would sometimes mutter against it because it was, so much of it was irrational. And I would find other people beside me in the queue would actually wag their fingers at me and say, no, 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 this is, this is really good. We, we, we're, it's making us more safe. When it patently isn't, yeah. if you think about it for a moment, it isn't. But, yeah. the, but it, people think that it is. And once you've got people that think that it's safer, yeah. then you're more than halfway there. Yeah, I just put my aftershave into this plastic bag. Yeah, that should I keep mean, us all yeah, safe. Yeah, nothing, nothing will happen. I mean, the, 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 simple, the simple measure which made everybody three million times safer 
was the locking of and, and effective uh, armoring of the doors between the, the flight deck of the plane and the, and the, the passenger cabin, mm. and rules which made it very much less likely that anybody would ever be let into yeah. uh, the, 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 the actual flight deck again, and that's what made us safer. All the rest of the stuff was just... Absolute nonsense. Uh, stay where we are, Peter. Uh, we will go to break now and resume this conversation after these messages. I'm with Peter Hitchens, the Mail on Sunday columnist. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. See it, hear it, think it. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. I'm still with Mail on Sunday columnist uh, Peter Hitchens. Uh, you highlighted another thing in your excellent column yesterday, Peter. Uh, something that's been uh, uh, confusing me. Uh, that is why on the invitation to the coronation, uh, King Charles's invitation, right at the bottom, pretty boldly, is a big image of the Green Man. The green man. That is a p- pagan god. Uh, I'm assuming the coronation is a Christian ceremony. Uh, what is the Green Man doing on well, this invitation? I wish invitation? I knew. <laughs> I, 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 whether the Green Man is a pagan god or whatever, I don't know. But there's a general understanding seems to be he's, he's some sort of pagan symbol out of the old uh, the old era of forest worship and, and which existed across mm. Europe long before uh, we were here uh, it's certainly not a Christian symbol although it appears in some churches and you have to wonder what uh, what possessed the king to have it on his invitation and it sort of stands out I mean I get royal invitations all the time as you do no doubt with um, with the royal arms on there actually I don't uh, which are um, uh, where you look at the royal arms, you think, great, but the green man on that invitation really stands up. Why is it there? I don't know. Uh, I think um, I, I'm getting I'm getting belaboured on Twitter at the moment for saying that quite a lot of pagan things survived hmm. uh, into Christian England. Uh, somebody, but they wrote, did. somebody wrote in and said that there were no there was no paganism in England after 920 AD. What you mean? Obviously, the, the censuses and the and, and the British household surveys of the time show that. <laughs> but I have I just have my doubts. I mean, yeah. when new religions are triumphant, uh, if they're sensible and they usually are, they tend to incorporate little bits and pieces of what was uh, of what was there before uh, to keep people coming in. So it wouldn't mean be particularly surprising if things like that appear but i wonder whether it's just a green thing uh whether whether charles's advisors or he himself wanted something because he is very uh, very preoccupied yeah. with the green cause i wonder whether that's what led him to put it there i worry about king charles he's, he's, i worry about him too. he seems to be turning into a sort of human version of the guardian you know he's supporting this great uh, investigation into the royal family's links of with slavery and you know what that, that's going to be uh, the outcome of that will be in about six months or so yes the royal family was steeped in slavery and King Charles will grovelingly well, apologise. They can sell Buckingham Palace. And nothing will have been achieved. Well, sell Buckingham Palace and pay it off, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. But I, I have to tell you here my anecdote about the time I didn't meet Prince Charles. OK, go on. Well, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 person, the person on on my newspaper who at that time did the liaison with the palace approached me in a, in a corridor and said, if you were invited to meet the, the heir to the throne, would you blab? And I said, No. And he said, right, we'll expect to hear in the next few weeks. And I, I waited and waited for the, for the call or whatever, or the footman or whatever was going to come and say, come and meet Charles. Nothing happened. Years later, I discovered that two of his advisors, and at that time he'd had some pretty, um, how shall I put it, uh, right-on advisors, had said to him, you, you can't meet this man, Hitchens. It'll, it, if ever it comes out, you'll be completely discredited. Don't dare to meet him. And I thought... 
well, okay, you can have that view if you like. But I thought, how wet? Yes. How wet not to go? If, if anybody, if, if I had advisors who said that to me, I'd say, well, he, we, he obviously has to come in because, but he just, he just, he sheared away from me. At that stage, he hadn't quite become the completely uh, greenized, um, really quite woke person it's he's woke, become since. It? I think it is. Yeah. I think he, he, he used to have, um, I think, rather more. Um, what you might call old-fashioned um, patriotic traditional tendencies. He's still got them, but I think they've been they've been pushed into the background by his very very strong uh, preoccupation with with the green issue, which is which of course for those of us who think that it's just possible that the uh, the arguments of the of extinction rebellion might go too far means that we don't really have an impartial monarch anymore. Yeah, I mean... That, it's that, a very great difficulty for, for monarchists to have a king who's so committed to something so controversial. Yeah, both him and Prince William are steeped in the politics of climate change. Uh, and I think that's a problem. Uh, let's... Uh, we've only got a few minutes left, but uh, two or three minutes left, but uh, wanted to get your take on... Uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, or it's not, what is it called now? The Windsor Framework. Well, yes. It's the 25th anniversary since well, the... What you call it is quite important. I've always thought that calling it the Good Friday Agreement was slightly blasphemous, mm -hmm. and also public relations. Uh, I call it the Belfast Agreement because it, it was a, actually quite a, a brutal and cynical agreement mm -hmm. in which, beyond all doubt, and under very, very strong American pressure, the British government made shocking concessions to the provisional IRA. And shall I tell you something? The night, the night it was all going on, I remember trying to find out what was happening. And I got glimmers. And so I worked in those days for the Daily Express. So I got glimmers and bits and pieces, which made me worry considerably that some sort of surrender had taken place. And I wrote the following morning that, uh, the, that I thought it was a dangerous mistake. And I was shocked to find out as, that I was the only person who'd written anything of that kind of, in a in the Fleet Street newspaper. I thought, why am I the only one? And the other thing was that everybody... I think everybody you're kind of used to that. referring it. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't as used... This is 25 years yeah, ago. Yeah. I wasn't as used to it then. And I, I then made a simple inquiry. Everyone went on about how it had been signed. And I rang up the, the appropriate uh, department. I said, did, did Sinn Féin, did anybody from Sinn Féin sign this document? And they said, no. Yeah, well, the uh, British government and the Irish government signed it, but Sinn Féin did not. And I thought that was a fascinating detail, which which by itself tells you a great deal about and it. And now you've got Rishi Sunak acting as if uh, his Windsor framework has solved the problems of the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, whereas it has done nothing of the sort because the DUP don't like it and they cannot reconvene Stormont. Well, the whole thing was, 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 was kicking everything down the road. The key thing it kicked down the road was the eventual transfer of Northern Ireland to rule from Dublin, which is, which is a key part of the agreement. It will be done by a referendum, but this would never have been contemplated before the agreement. The, the, the United Kingdom would never have contemplated handing over a piece of its territory to another country before that agreement. It's a, handing over your territory to another country is a major surrender, it seems to me, even if you do it provisionally, that is to say, when a referendum is eventually called and held, we will hand over. But it's an absolute obligation. The agreement's not ambiguous about it at all. If that referendum takes place just once mm -hmm. and, can, uh, and it comes up with the, with the majority for transfer, then we have to transfer it. If it doesn't come up with the majority transfer, it can be held again every seven years. So it's again, it's it's a it's a it's a one-way thing. There is, if it if it if if a referendum came and, and they and people voted that they didn't want 
uh, to, to join the Republic, that would not be the end of it. It would simply be possible to hold another one within a, within a, a, a minimum time of seven years, and it would just go on. So this is, this is the first, in, in Western Europe, it would be, will be, the first transfer of territory in Western Europe since 1945 uh, as a result of violent action. Uh, it's an amazing thing. People don't read it. They don't understand it. They don't see what it means. I, I'm, I'm just shocked. And the, the huge American pressure, some of which I've witnessed as a correspondent in Washington uh, shortly before, the huge American pressure on this country to give way on this issue remains really quite shocking to anybody who thinks we have a special relationship with the United States. Yeah, the uh, Northern Ireland situation has not been solved, it seems to me. Peter, thank you so much for coming in. That's uh, Peter Hitchens, the brilliant columnist from the Mail on Sunday, here every Monday, every delight to see him. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking uh, to Peter Blexley, former Met Police detective, about uh, the extraordinary news that uh, serious criminals like Wayne Cousins, Ian Huntley, Levi Belfield, all killers and rapists, are going to get uh, landlines installed in their prison cells. What's that about? A lot of controversy surrounding uh, this uh, very nasty Labour campaign, uh, which they promise will continue. But for the time being, I'm uh, very pleased to say that in the studio, former Met Police detective Peter Blexley joins me. Thanks for coming in, Peter. My pleasure. Uh, first up, a story that uh, cropped up over the weekend. Uh, there's a prison called Frankland, I think, and uh, it's got some of our worst prisoners in it. Uh, people like Wayne Cousins, the cop killer who raped and killed Sarah. Everard, Ian Huntley, of course, the schoolgirl killer, uh, Levi Belfield, serial killer and rapist. Now, I don't know much about prisons, but I watch the movies, I watch the telly, and the big thing is, and I read the papers sometimes, uh, the big thing is, you know, if a prisoner gets caught with a mobile phone, it's a very, very serious offence that could lead to an extension of their sentence. Uh, so, and, and you can see why. Why should you have contact with the outside world when you're a prisoner? You've uh, forsaken that responsibility. So, uh, why then are all of these serious uh, prisoners at Franklin? getting landlines installed in their cells. I'm utterly flabbergasted by this story. I mean, even lifers as horrendous as the ones that you've mentioned do have access to a phone, but it's a communal phone, generally speaking, and the amount of time that they have on there is strictly monitored and limited for obvious reasons. Now, installing their own, we can call them personal phones, into their cells is utterly outrageous. And... Just imagine, and I'm sorry to be distasteful if I may, but that monster, Belfield, mm -hmm. who murdered Marsha MacDonald, Amelie Delagrange and Millie Dowler, um, has recently been saying how he's applied to get married. Yeah, I know. Imagine if he's got a phone in his cell and on that phone he is discussing perhaps his bride's dress yeah. or the order of service <laughs> or what songs they're going to sing or whether they'll be allowed to have cucumber sandwiches afterwards. Yeah. I mean, how distasteful and disrespectful to the memories of those three victims, and there were others, you know, horrendous series of other crimes he committed. It's It's ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. Phones in their cells, TVs... Uh, getting married behind bars. I mean, what next? Swimming pools, trips to the seaside, days out. I mean, it's ridiculous. Room service. <laughs> Obviously, that'll be the next thing. 
they can just use these phones that are in their cells and order a pizza or some other kind of takeaway meal. I mean, that's the slippery slope we appear to be on. Yeah, and why don't uh, the authorities accept that the the main reason for prison is punishment? All they talk about is rehabilitation, and we're all in favour of that, of course. However, you know, people like Levi Belfield, Wayne Cousins is never getting out, he's got a full life sentence. Levi Belfield, Ian Huntley, Wayne Cousins, you can't rehabilitate them. Uh, So uh, they're being punished. So don't give them phones. Don't let them get married. You know, give them a hard time. Their crimes are absolutely beyond the pale. As you say, they will not be rehabilitated and they are there until they gasp their last. Now, if somebody's made a one-off mistake in life and they've received a shorter sentence, say three or four years, for example, and they need access to a phone in order to help them with life on the outside, to perhaps sort out some accommodation, to maintain links with their kids, to perhaps get a job so that they can walk into that when they get out of jail. Give those people the necessary access to phones to facilitate all of that. But these monsters who represent the worst of humanity that this nation has ever produced should most definitely not have a personal cell in their phone, a personal phone in their cell. It's getting ridiculous. Uh, still with these monsters, uh, let's talk about David Carrick. Uh, obviously the copper who's recently uh, convicted of something like 83 offences, sex attacks on women. Uh, It turns out there was a brilliant investigation in the Sunday Times yesterday that revealed that he's thought to have committed his first rape when he was just 13 years old. This is new information. We didn't know this before. My question really is, you know, years later, he apparently later left school, got a job in the co-op, then joined the army and then joined the police force. Uh, questions have to be asked about the recruitment process. There must, didn't anyone talk to this guy? There must have been something wrong with him. How did he get into the police force? And there are other alleged victims that have come forward in recent times. And so there will be further investigation into even more crimes that this monster Carrick has potentially committed. Back in the day when I was a young 16 year old, a local neighbourhood cop. A very long time ago, sad to say. A local neighbourhood cop came round to the flat that I shared with my mum and very politely but rather cleverly asked to have a little look in my bedroom and he looked to see what posters were on the wall and he had a look around and he was interested in my record collection and all these kind of things which to me were engaging and I was only too happy to show him my QPR programmes, my LPs (laughs) and what posters were on the wall, you know. But of course, he was actually quite cleverly and subtly having a little look around to see what kind of young man I was and whether I was appropriate to to join the police. And that's the problem with people like uh, uh, Carrick and other rogue cops that get into the police force way too many of them lots and lots of them uh, nobody is uh, evidently trying to find out what kind of young people these applicants are and also when they've got in where there has clearly been a failing and baroness casey highlighted this in a report of a couple of weeks ago and i've been banging on to you about it kev for a very very long time that frontline management and supervision by sergeants and inspectors has fallen well short of what it should be and that has been because in the recent flaky fluffy kind of policing world that we've had imposed upon us d the d word discipline 
became a dirty word because people were afraid to discipline in case they faced allegations of bullying. You're in a disciplined organisation. If the sergeant tells you to get your hair cut, polish your boots and stand to attention, then that's what you do. It's ridiculous. We are, however, seeing the green shoots of recovery in terms of the discipline word because I think it's all part of Sir Mark Rowley's kind of reinvention and reimagining of the Met Police, which, of course, is very much needed. We wish him well. Uh, this isn't about the Met Police, it's about Essex Police, but uh, the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, uh, is furious uh, that the Essex Police, they swooped on a pub, six officers. Uh, what was the uh, alleged crime? Uh, it was that this pub displays uh, a collection of gollywogs. Yep. So we're talking about a, a hate, potential hate crime. Yep. Six coppers? Yeah. Six cop. What is that about? It's quite staggering, really. And, of course, the broader issue, I suppose, is, is whether if people are offended, you know, do we take this as a crime and should the police be acting upon it? Now, I'm old enough to remember a particular brand of jam that had one of these dolls on the front of each and every jar that it oh, sold. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's gone now, of course. And perhaps some people might find it offensive. But if I walked into a pub and there was a Chelsea Football Club scarf hanging above the bar, I'd do a 180 and walk out, because <laughs> I would be offended by that. But I wouldn't pick up the phone and ring the old bill. Yeah. Just find another boozer to drink in. Yeah. If there is something in there, and let's face it, you can go to many pubs and clubs and find people of different allegiances to different movements, different politics, mm. different clubs, different interests, and if it's not for you, move on, there's always somewhere else to drink. But it's, it's classic, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, I can understand some people, somebody complained about this, apparently, and I suppose gollywogs uh, inherently are controversial and all that. And so... It, you know, if somebody complains to the police, it is a complaint of a potential crime. The police are required to do something about it. But surely sort of one copper could have come and have a, had a quick chat with a landlord and said, look, somebody's complained. I don't know what you want to do about it. But, you know, six coppers? Well, of course, it's because they're obsessed with hate crimes, aren't they? Oh, and, and I think they've become very risk averse, you see. So the thought of now it would be two police officers. In this day and age, even I would be rather loath to send officers out patrolling on their own. I think patrolling in a pair is entirely reasonable, in fact, probably necessary in 2023. Sure, absolutely. But a couple of cops to walk into a pub should be fine. But perhaps the broader thing is, is this an indicator of how far the standing of the police in the eyes of the public has collapsed in that they feel they have to hunt as packs. Yeah, they they have to go in groups now because they fear they, they themselves might be abused or attacked. Yeah, no, yeah, I saw a car broken down or some kind of arrest going on the other day on the North Circular. I mean, there must have been 50 cops there. It seems to be extraordinary how many cops go on single jobs. Uh, Peter, always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for coming in. It's Peter Blexley, former Met Police detective. Uh, when we come back, Trevor Kavanagh from The Sun I want to ask him what he thinks about those poisonous posters being put up by Labour about Rishi Sunak allegedly being soft on paedophiles. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live from the Talk Radio studio. Edgy Talk, News Talk. Talk, Talk Radio. Kevin O'Sullivan, full contact, common sense conversation. Talk Radio, the home of free speech. Plain talking, pioneering. Kevin O'Sullivan. Hear the world differently. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back. This is the final hour of uh, this mid-morning spectacular. This is the afternoon bit, uh, much still to come. We're going to be talking uh, about the junior doctor's strike fairly soon and uh, we're going to be asking why the striking junior doctors are being offered counselling to deal with the nasty comments they get on social media. You want to go on strike? Go on strike, but don't moan about it when people don't like it. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Or better still, don't go on strike. So we'll be talking about that in a, a little while. Also, uh, we'll be finishing on a spot of sport uh, because extraordinary scenes at the Liverpool-Arsenal match yesterday where a uh, linesman appeared to elbow footballer, Liverpool star Andy Robertson in the face. Uh, there's an invest- investigation going on now and that... Uh, Uh, Official has been suspended from all matches until this is resolved. But uh, now, I mean, you've heard of players attacking officials and each other. Uh, But now officials are attacking players? What's going on? Also, we will celebrate uh, a European triumph in the Masters Golf over in America. Spaniard, Spanish star uh, John Rahm triumphed, uh, won the Masters last night in a thrilling tournament. So uh, a bit of sport at the end. And also we'll be taking your calls. Got lots of good calls. We will get you on. So give me a call. What do you think about the migrant crisis? What do you think about these Labour posters uh, that are saying that Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, is soft on paedophiles? Very hard line stuff. Uh, A lot of underhand stuff. Labour people saying take these posters down. Keir Starmer not apologising. What do you think? 03444991000. Give us a call. Get involved in the conversation and we will get you on. Uh, We're going to start this hour, though, by talking about what must surely be uh, potentially the most absurd university degree in all the world. If you attend uh, Rose Bruford College, uh, Gary Oldman went there. Tom Baker, so it's obviously quite an arty place, Uh, you can get a degree in, uh, their words, not mine, queer performance. Basically, it's a course about drag queens given by a uh, character who is called a scholar of drag. Uh, Now, I've got nothing against drag queens, but do you really need an academic course? Uh, I don't know, a bit strange. Uh, Really pleased to say that in the studio, waiting to discuss this issue, uh, he is the author of a book called Gender Madness, uh, One Man's Devastating Struggle with Woke Ideology and His Battle to Protect Children uh, as well. Uh, So a warm welcome to Ollie London. Hi, Ollie. Great to see you, Kevin. Do we need a university degree in draggery? (laughs) I mean, you know, this isn't going to set students up for their future. Imagine going for a job interview, Kevin, and you're saying... What sort of degree have you got? I've got a degree in drag. I mean, the employee is surely not going to hire you. And no, (laughs) even if you are interested in drag and stuff, it's a 15-month course which costs £11,000. And most people, you know, drag queens, they get booked once in a while. It's not an everyday thing. Only a very small minority of people are going to get booked in clubs at prides and performances and stuff kind of like acting it's a very tough industry to break in so why on earth would you want to get a degree in something that you can't really get employed in so i just think it's kind of uh, it's a waste of money and a waste of time but it feeds into this kind of the strange i mean again i'm nothing against drag queens mm-hmm. i've been to lots of good drag shows down the Vauxhall tavern and mm-hmm. all that uh they're always very entertaining i would um, suggest Drag queens are for grown-ups. And I wonder what you thought of Drag Queen Story Hour, which is this, uh, in my view, strange phenomenon 
of drag queens being invited into schools and libraries to tell stories to very young kids. Uh, I mean, what is that about? And why do drag queens want to do it? Other sections of the... You don't get sort of, I don't know, police officers going, we want to tell stories to children or, or plumbers. Plumbers want to tell stories to children. Why do drag queens want to do this? Well, you know, drag queens should be classified as adult entertainment. And in the US and Tennessee, they've actually done that because, you know, most of their shows are very kind of um, sexualized and adult and explicit. So, you know, the fact that the National um, Education Union voted the other day to push more drag story hours in classrooms. You know, why can't we have fire people going into schools? Why can't we have police officers giving speeches about, you know, something positive? Why do we constantly need this push of people dressed up you know nothing against that do it as an adult but going into schools and reading books and some of these books are about gender some are about sex some are about changing their pronouns why do we have that constant push i mean i don't know why drag queens drag queen story why they want to go into schools mm. and tell stories to young children i don't know why uh, but the cynical side of me uh, might uh, conclude that what they want to do is sexualise children to uh, give, them, give them adult content. Uh, there's some kind of weird process going on. And that's just my mm. uh, theory. But what would you would you consider there's something in that? Yeah, I agree with that. And also it's um, indoctrinating children from a young age with gender ideology. So it's, you know, it's going yes. into classrooms. And a lot of these books uh, that these drag queens read are targeting children about changing of pronouns, being non-binary, being trans. Kids do not need to learn that, you know. Uh, kids in primary school should not be learning those things but you know it's indoctrinating people from a younger and younger age so when they grow up they want to join this ideology they then suddenly want to transition and you know we just need to let kids be kids so kids should be protected in the classroom and I think it's shocking that the National Education Union is trying to push to have these drag story hours in schools. It, it really is and don't forget uh, was it a couple of months ago uh, at a school in the Isle of Man mm. a drag queen uh, was busy teaching the kids about 73 different genders there's no scientific proof of that by the way they shouldn't be telling kids things that we do not know to be true uh, many people including me uh, might say uh, there aren't 73 genders there are two uh, but uh, for kids to be taught that by a drag queen uh, I think is a bit odd and uh, in one of those brilliant moments Ollie you know the innocence of a child emperor's new clothes moment mm. so this drag queen's going there's 73 different genders some kid goes he's 11 years old go no there's not there's two <laughs> and the drag queen sent him out of the yes, class yes i heard about that i mean it's it's just shocking you know we shouldn't have people these people aren't qualified to teach kids they're not qualified to go and teach kids about science and biology like you know even if they've got a qualification from that woke university that's got the drag course that doesn't qualify you to speak to kids and say how many pronouns there are how many genders there are you know that's a teacher's job so we shouldn't have these people suddenly going into classrooms you know they're great for adult entertainment they're great for pride events and stuff but they should not be in the classroom now you've been through uh the gender mill if i may put it that way <laughs> yeah. uh and you're sitting there i uh, i've never actually asked anyone this question before but try, i did to ollie just before i said to what's your pronouns uh hush my mouth what's what's <laughs> what's happening to me i've changed uh and he said he he him <laughs> uh so you're a fully fledged bloke now uh mm. but to tell us about your your book uh gender madness one man's devastating struggle with woke ideology you've been on the other side of the fence you identified as a woman mm. uh, uh what made you change your mind about all of that 
Um, so I realized I had to address my issues. So I'd struggled my whole life with identity. I'd struggled with being bullied. So I really tried to erase the person I was. And then I thought, you know, let me take a step back. Let me work on myself and fix myself because it's only going down one route. I'm going to be doing more and more extreme surgeries and changes. So I decided to stop that. And then what happened is I really started to see what was going on in the world. You know, I saw all these sexualized kind of drag shows where kids are attending. I saw all these kids wanting to change their gender from like five and six. I saw in America... 15 year olds having double mastectomy so I was shocked so you know I did a lot of research about that so I wrote a book about my experience how I you know battled with these demons and how I came out you know on the other side kind of happy and now trying to warn other people you know don't go down this route when you're a kid when you're young because kids are easily influenced by social media certain things they're educated in so I just want to warn kids I want to warn parents and the book is kind of detailing all the issues in the world right now with gender ideology with wokeism with the attack on women's rights and really kind of try and find a solution to protect kids and protect women. Interesting that you uh, cite uh, women's rights uh, there because I want to get your take on the ongoing row uh, surrounding mm. Nike, uh, which has an advertising campaign out there right now for sports bras, for women's sportswear, uh, clothes for women. Uh, and the person that they've hired to promote these products, this range of clothing for women, uh, is not a woman. Mm. It's a trans woman called Dylan Mulvaney. Uh, and many women are furious about this. And uh, I, what, what I would say is, hang on, it's a range of women's sportswear, including sports bras. And uh, there's uh, Dylan uh, on screen there. And uh, you've chosen someone who doesn't have breasts to promote uh, a sports bra mm -hmm. and other women's clothes. What you couldn't find a single woman to promote these products? What's this about? I mean, you're absolutely right. This is a product for 100% women that actually have breasts. So it's a complete mocking of women. You know, why on earth would you put someone that wasn't a woman, they're biologically a man, and this is not just any trans person. This is the person that clearly mocks women. He's done things with Tampax where he's saying he's using them. He's talked about having a period. He's talked about getting pregnant. So this is a person that clearly mocks women. So he's actually the worst person in the world to have as a brand ambassador because he's mocking women and this uh move by nike to do this is you know it's made women furious we had the olympic um champion uh, shannon davis um calling it out and saying that you know this is offensive to women we shouldn't be buying from brands that mock us that's what i'm saying you've got mm. sharon davis mm. former olympic swimmer uh is saying uh, let's boycott nike products mm -hmm. i don't like uh, commercial boycotts but in this instance I think that's the only way forward for mm. women they've got to make some sort of statement and also impressively uh, the famous also a former uh, Olympic athlete by the way the famous uh, American trans woman Caitlyn Jenner mm -hmm. has come out and said the same this is unfair to women uh, this is wrong don't mm. buy these products so you've got some powerful voices mm. telling Nike where to get off here yeah, absolutely. I mean, this brand deal should have gone to a female athlete, you know, a female athlete that works incredibly hard. And, you know, Caitlyn Jenner, I was speaking with her the other day on Twitter and stuff. And, uh, you know, she is an athlete, so she's been through this. She knows what it's like to get all these sponsorship deals. And she said as well, this is really mocking women. And Dylan is not a great role model for women or even for trans people. He mocks them as well. So, mm. you know, I, I think Caitlyn said the right thing. And also, I mean, that to go back to drag queens, uh, as I say, I have no objection to them. They don't really affect me very 
very much. I've seen a few, been quite entertained by them. Some of them are very funny. Mm. Uh, I saw Paul O'Grady in his day when he was still doing Lily Savage down at the Vauxhall yeah. Tavern. So, I've, you know, I've got... It's doesn't really enter my life. But, of course, you know, when you say, oh, they're completely harmless, a lot of women say, well, we don't think they are harmless. We think that they mock femininity, mm. that they mock women. Now, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I can clearly see that argument because a lot of these drag queens, it's, it seems like a fetish, you know. They're all in the lingerie, they're doing sexualized shows. Mm-hmm. And so women do get offended by that. You know, we've had pantomime, we've had drag shows for a long time. Like you said, the late Paul O'Grady was a class act. He was, you know, a fantastic act. Um, but what we're seeing now is this kind of almost fetishizing being a woman, mm-hmm. you know, and you have these people now going into women's spaces and that's the real issue when they're going into women's toilets and restrooms and, you know, making women feel uncomfortable and, you know, in this fetish gear, trying to sexualize what it is to be a woman without even understanding what a woman is. What would you say, finally, Ollie? Uh, been great talking to you. What would you say to a kid? I, I won't cite an age, but a kid confused about their gender, thinking about making serious, life-changing decisions. Uh, what what advice would you give them? Well, there's a lot of pressure on kids um, these days, you know, from spending a lot of time on TikTok. You know, I don't think TikTok and other apps is very healthy for a kid to be constantly on there because it does change their way that way of thinking. So if they see Dylan Mulvaney and they see all these gender ideology videos, they become susceptible to believing in that. So I just think, you know, kids need to protect their childhood as long as possible, you know, stay off the phone as long as possible. Um, enjoy your education. We shouldn't be exposing kids to drag queens in schools <laughs> and just, you know, just let kids be kids. If they're struggling with their identity it's perfectly normal for a teenager to do that but we need to help them navigate through that into adulthood because most of these people that question their gender as a teenager they grow out of it as an adult well said ollie mm. uh, really good to talk to you thank you so much for Thanks, coming Kevin. in that's ollie mm. Lon- london the author of gender madness one man's devastating struggle with woke ideology uh, when we come back we're taking your calls 0344 499 Get involved in the conversation. Let us know what you think. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live from the Talk Radio studios. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.